the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to welcome back to the studio my dear friend Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, educator. Um, I've been looking forward to this all day. Uh, Running partner, uh, partner in um, trying to solve a lot of crime, I think, (laughs) moral and legal. Um, Father Hugh, welcome to the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've got to adjust my collar here. Yes, sir. Um, the uh, the great opportunity to be here with you uh, em- empowers my life. It helps build uh, my week, it gives me something to look forward to. But the moment we finish the show, I have to dig through an entire week before me before I get to do that again. Fortunately, funny. we have our, our opportunities to run together. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, you need to know Seth is working diligently to continue to improve his life. Running is one of those things we do together to hold one another accountable. And I'm using that as a point because we are talking about today your monologue, which raises the point that we've been discussing over the last week or so about the things in our society that seem to be at the breaking point, or as you properly call them, that they may be at the point of no return. Can we get back to base and build a society to sustain it? Uh, Our founders understood this was a unique opportunity. They took that opportunity. We count that date uh, as the founding of this society in 1776. Now, certainly there were precursor things going on that gave rise to that moment, but it was a unique moment in time. I think of it as the Sistine Chapel moment. What I mean by that is represented on the roof of the Sistine, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is the moment God's finger touches Adam's finger and creates existence. And those kind of miraculous moments, I think, are worth remembering and celebrating carefully because they are rare. The human condition, if one looks at uh, history and uh, digs into the past of human existence, uh, brutish and short are two of the five words that uh, Hobbes used to describe it. Uh, But it doesn't take much. You look into a record of history before even a few hundred years ago, and for much of the world— it was uh, challenging, and for much of the world, it still is. And those who live in this country and don't understand the blessing they have been provided, whether you think of it as from God or from some other uh, result, it is still this miraculous result where the poorest person in this country is wealthier than about 95% of the people on the planet. Probably lives better than the Sun King. Yes. Probably. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. So uh, Louis the Fourteenth is mm-hmm. who he was referring to. And except for the glass and pretty pretty yeah. kind of stuff painted all over his buildings, uh, health was not something that was easily enjoyed. Uh, folks suffered from all kinds of diseases, even in the most wealthy of homes, in part in the wealthy homes, because they overindulged in stuff that was bad for them and didn't understand that. Drinking red wine meant you got lead poisoning, for example. Uh, So here we are in a society that has been granted extraordinary blessings, and we have a whole host of people who denigrate its existence. And in that denigration 
have given rise, and I would say I really mark it the last 70 years, beginning in the early 1960s, almost 70 years, maybe 60 years is better uh, appropriate since I'm 62 and born in 1962, um, that you see what starts to happen beginning in the 1960s is the rise of government involvement. And you make note of how important it was to our founders to separate religion as a an area in which politics and the government would engage, not just because they were a-religious, but because it opened and left that field open to individuals to participate and enjoy without having the referee siding on any one side. Our founders were very careful about that because they had to fear the Church of England concept. And most of the people who had come to this society were freeing themselves from a religion that was very contained, and they were celebrating their religions in different ways. And so our founders understood that diversity of religious interest and desire is what gave rise to the First Amendment as part of the final compromise to get the Constitution passed, that Congress shall make no law abridging and the main point for the First Amendment for this issue, religion, is to establish uh, a religion effectively or the free exercise thereof. There are two pieces to that. You can't establish a religion, a religion or, frankly, interfere with its, uh, with its exercise. Interesting examples of how that plays out on a daily basis. 501c3s are charities. That is the, the designation in the Internal Revenue Code for a charity that gets tax-deductible donations. Charities need to apply for that exemption if they have more than about $5,000 in income in a given year. There's one specific designation of charities within that basket that is deemed a 501c3, so your contributions to it are charitable. They do not have to apply for that exemption. They do not file tax returns, and they do not are not subject to a whole host of other uh, regulatory structures under the Internal Revenue Code and its regulations. What is that? Churches. Because the Constitution so clearly established that, that the, the Internal Revenue Code and the Internal Revenue Service doesn't touch that. And it's a rare instance, Bob Jones University, where that religious activity was deemed to be violated because it was really being used as a front to do other kinds of things. It's a very rare instance. The Internal Revenue Service hasn't been used against the Catholic Church, for example, notwithstanding the various things that have occurred in the society in the last 20 years uh, through revelation, the, the, the non-religious revelation. Uh, in this instance here, you've set the ground in your monologue. If you didn't uh, hear it live, ladies and gentlemen, please listen to it in the podcast at... Uh, at uh, 960thepatriot.com. Yes. .com. There you yeah. have it. And, and, and or, you know, the Seth Liebson Show, if you just Google that, it'll pop up. There are lots of ways to get it. Very worthwhile. I listen to them on my phone when I've missed the show and often run to them because they inspire me. <laughs> uh, the thinking that goes into these shows is significant, and it helps keep one mind off of running when one doesn't enjoy it that much. <laughs> that would be me. Um so it eliminates the pain in my body by bringing my mind to a higher level. The point is, we've got three topics, really, and I'm sorry it took so long to set this table, okay. that we are at points of, of concern and potentially getting close to that point of no return, that tipping point, and that is family formation, religious engagement, and political life. And I bring in that second one because your monologue yesterday and your discussion was about the fracturing of, for example, the Republican Party, because people are now raising the question, if I'm not somebody who supports Donald Trump, do I have a home? 
And I want to talk about all three of these in our hour here because each of them has features to them that your monologue today points out in reverse. Okay. And that is to say, your monologue says we did not establish a religion. But what we have now done with government is incentivize people to step away from each of these three things, that the government has taken actions in each of these three arenas to exacerbate the average person's involvement in family formation, religious participation, and political enjoyment. And all three of those things have been undermined not because uh, individuals made those decisions, absent government interference or incentivizing non-participation in all three of those. And I'd like to go through those with you in our next segments uh, because you and Lewis really, uh, when you did your show last week without me, wisely, uh, you started with the idea of love and war. And that discussion of love ended up taking the entire hour and drove the difference between what is a relationship, which is something that meant uh, a bargain, a give and take, and what was love. And that by definition, the concept of love is outside of a relationship. You may have a relationship that includes love, but relationship means a bargain. Who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to do these things? Which was important, and we need to discuss that original family formation concept versus what uh, befalls us all. Even the Greeks understood that you get shot with an arrow from Cupid. It is not something you control, and it is something that is quite violent to the system. That was the reason for that notion and that those two things are very separate and our more modern society has infused and insisted that that violent act of love has to be part of the relationship that one creates in a household for household formation. And there are important reasons over most of human history why those two things maybe have been parallel but were not necessary to assure societies being sustained and how things worked. And so when we come back, I hope we can start with that one. Sammy Kershaw, great country singer, has a song called Politics, Religion, and Her. Three things you're not allowed to talk about. Well, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're doing politics, we're doing religion, and we're doing love. <laughs> Hugh Holman is my guest. And um, counterpoise to Sammy Kershaw, we're going to take him on and be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you from the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio, brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. Hugh Hallman is my guest, former mayor of Tempe. You liked that Nixon stuff David did yesterday. Wasn't that something? Uh, I, it was incredible that uh, he his founded recall. it all, yeah. but that he kept it in his memory yeah. banks and knew to pull it up. And what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is a, a uh, discussion interview by, I think Mike it was Wallace. Mike Wallace, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of Richard Nixon in 1967-68 on the run-up to the election. And Wallace sort of points out that neither he nor Hubert Horatio Humphrey uh, were necessarily likable people or liked. And Richard Nixon points out that none of that, in his view, is relevant, yeah. uh, that there are lots of and he used the word public men, but people in public uh, service who are loved and many who are disliked. But the important thing is, are they respected? And I've often given my personality peculiarities, had to remind folks that it is better to be uh, feared than loved and better to be respected than either. <laughs> um, and um, in this instance, Nixon's point is that in the political activity that we have with the rise of marketing in our politics, 
uh, perhaps really with the uh, campaign in 60 or 64, you pick your, your television ad for, uh, for Kennedy or for against, uh, for Lyndon Johnson, but against Goldwater. The use of marketing to really dumb down political decisions about important policy choices. And your monologue yesterday focused on the fact that we have given so much weight to the popularity piece, the marketing piece, mm-hmm. because in in the conservative instance now, Donald Trump is not necessarily well-liked by a whole lot of people, mm-hmm. that he behaves in ways that is unlikable by folks who want a more genteel society. A whole bunch of folks in Arizona who are otherwise as as conservative as they get don't and wouldn't support him because they put so much weight on that character behavior that is the marketing side of things rather than, as your monologue points out, let's go through the list of policies that we all care about and recognize that that family formation in politics is being undermined by our allowing this activity to dictate to us what is important in our decision making. And yet, if you pile up those people who are on the conservative side or on the Republican Party side, Nikki Haley is ultimately not very far off from Donald Trump in policy. I would say they're probably 90 percent in agreement. Correct. Probably. And and that is in part why uh, Donald Trump uh, brought Nikki Haley onto his team. Mm-hmm. And she served ably and said good things about him. They now are, you know, tooth and nail against one another because each wants that big ring. Understandable. But at the end of the day... Those people have to be brought together, and it is incumbent on the leaders at the top who have caused these challenges within our ranks to set the table and behave as leaders and pull people together. So likely Donald Trump will win. Likely Nikki Haley will not gather enough, but there's a long, uh, you know, she's got a small number, uh, but we're not very far through it. And I'm not saying that uh, that I'm, I'm thinking she's going to win. It's just that. A lot happens between now and uh, the the uh, uh, time when the the candidate is finally selected at the convention, and we've had some challenges, as did the, have the Democrats. In that context, it's crucially important then that everybody come together. And the challenge you're pointing out in your monologue is the number of times that that has failed. And every time we fail to do that, we lose. We lost in '64 because moderates would not support. Uh, Barry Goldwater, and we couldn't bring everybody together. Conservatives then held their nose and supported Richard Nixon, mostly. But there were third-party candidates who helped blow that up for the Democrats, as well as a, 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 a problem in their party at the time and a president that had badly served. Then we did it again in 76 when Gerald Ford had to run and we split ourselves up and we got one of the worst presidents who was one of the nicest people ever. Best character. The best character in the White House. Absolutely. And the weakest leader we'd have. Lovely fellow, I'm sure, but not somebody who ultimately should have led the most powerful uh, uh, country on the planet. Then we ended up with Ronald Reagan who was the, uh, you know, anathema per- person just like Barry Goldwater, who nobody would want, who demonstrated what it meant to be a leader and was able to pull everybody together eventually. 
Well, then we got George Herbert Walker Bush and conservatives again. They held their nose and we got Bill Clinton. And let's not forget, and nobody on the Democratic side ever points out that Bill Clinton didn't win that election against George Herbert Walker Bush. There was this other character from Texas who peeled off a whole lot of conservative votes because people didn't want to vote for George Herbert Walker Bush because he didn't keep his promise on taxes. We couldn't give it up and we got Bill Clinton. We can't let that happen to us. And the family formation in politics for us is that we've got to be big enough people when our particular side of the uh, of the party loses. We've got to remember that somebody who calls and is willing to call themselves a Republican and don't give me this rhino nonsense that people who call themselves Republicans are attaching to values that we all agree on. And those who want to point out, oh, he's a rhino, want to say that there's some uh, litmus test that makes you a Republican or not. And I disagree with that. There's a philosophy and there are instances in which one can have the exact same philosophy and see different ends of that. Abortion is one of our gravest challenges on the conservative side. I know too many conservatives who do not believe that the government should be in exercising in that area, precisely because they believe government power is not appropriately exercised there. And the fact that government power got used to restrict is the very basis on which liberals turned it around and said, if government power can be used in this space, then government power is going to be used by us to achieve our ends. And that's how they got Roe v. Wade eventually. So in our political family, we have got to do a better job recognizing those of us on the same side and putting down the swords among us and working to defeat the other side. Because in our view, the philosophy we carry goes back to the base of this country's founding and carries it forward and makes it great. Last point on this, the Supreme Court. The New York Times excoriated the court for the fact that suddenly we have activist judges who are now turning the clock back and I quote decades unquote on precedent. They didn't whine like that when just decades ago, it was 30 and 40 years ago, an activist court created precedent out of whole cloth. The penumbra of rights, that is a quote from the court's decision in Roe v. Wade, that the penumbra of rights that existed is what gave grounds to create a national standard under Roe v. Wade to say abortion can take place up to a certain time and restricting states' rights to govern it. That's the kind of philosophy that got inculcated into our Supreme Court. The New York Times says it's horrible that there are conservatives on the court now, this gang of conservatives who are reaching back in time and saying, wait a minute, the court aired a few decades ago. They're not overturning the entire Constitution. They're overturning very selective case law on the grounds that they could reason that the court didn't get to where it should have been or got to where it shouldn't have been based on using Uh, power that did not uh, exist in the hands of the court. Hugh Holman, uh, my guest, uh, that was someone politics entering into religion and family. I want to stay with politics for a moment. We may just have to go five more hours, but... Yeah, okay. All right. We'll talk fast. (laughs) I'll take a quick commercial break. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh Holman is my guest. I want to stay on this political part of our three-legged stool of family, faith, and politics for a moment, um, Hugh. 
I will go horse this season reminding people of not the 1964 convention, but the 1960 convention, where there was a small effort to nominate Barry Goldwater over Richard Nixon. It didn't go very far. But there was tremendous disappointment at the convention that uh, Goldwater lost to Nixon, who was seen as the moderate at the time. And Goldwater's famous Let's Grow Up conservatives speech is where that comes from. That was not the extremism, Defense of Liberty speech of 64. The Let's Grow Up conservative speech was 1960. And what he said was, um, if you stay home because your guy didn't win, meaning me, meaning Goldwater, then you will be supporting the Democratic Party's blueprint for socialism. That was his phrase, blueprint for socialism, 1960. Well, all I can say right now is it's not a blueprint anymore. Blueprint is, as you know, it's a draft. It's a design. It's kinetic. It's kinetic. The stakes are far higher now. Kind of gets us to our point of no return question a little bit. But it seems to me that when he says, let's grow up conservatives, we should take that notion very seriously because it takes a certain level of maturity to understand that just because your guy or gal, as the case may be, didn't get it. Um, we have a far greater enemy. I had a consultant the other day tell me, a Republican consultant the other day tell me I've lost more friends in primaries than generals. Something's really wrong when that is the case. Now, I get perhaps family feuds can be stronger than outside. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. Because what we're talking here about should not be about feelings and personal senses of uh, of self-importance and, and, and moral, moral sensibilities. We're talking not only just about our country, but when we're talking about our country and saving it, we're talking about what makes this country, which is its countrymen, our fellow countrymen. We're talking about citizens here that we are putting at great risk because of our own selfishness, because of our own immaturity. I'm, I, I, I'm very ardent on this point. Well, I think your uh, monologue— I, I offend people with it, but your, I'm ardent your, on it. Your monologue yesterday really touched on it, which is at the end of the day, we have to have— um, conversations when we disagree that allow us to work through why we disagree and hone in on that uh, our disagreement doesn't make you evil, uh, that there are policy reasons for it. In the same way, um, when we do battle with Democrats, most of them are well-meant and they have a philosophical base from which they are trying to build their view of society. Now, I happen to disagree that it's a base that will lead to the long-term sustainability of this society. That's why I disagree with them so vehemently. Uh, when you get to Marxist ideology that we now have in a number of congressmen who are promoting that through the Democratic Party, and it has gone that progressive left, I think they fail to play out what does it look like if you actually go forward with this? And if I hear yet again, well, the Soviet Union was just a bad example of the uh, exercise of bad Marxism. Or yeah, wrong, yeah, you know, it's just they just imperfect. Yeah. The answer is no. You misunderstand. When you begin with the premise that human beings' nature can be changed, and changed in the way that everybody will sacrifice his own interest to everyone else's, I think you start at a place that doesn't recognize human nature. I look at babies, infants, and as they grow, how children behave. It's not because they have been taught to behave in certain ways. Human beings have a, uh, a desire to sustain themselves. 
we try not, except in sorry instances, not to commit suicide uh, unintentionally. And we are seeking to sustain ourselves both in our behaviors, but also in how we breed and all the other kinds of things that take place as human beings developed genetically. With that, we now have societies, as you point out, the notion that, as a great uh, philosopher said, you have to have the polis, you must have the government structure before you have the family in order to have the place in which the family can exist. Mm -hmm. And when we come back, perhaps we can then build on that family. Yeah. Kind of an important philosopher, Aristotle. Who? Aristotle. Greek. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> you Holman is saying you taught you taught this stuff. He you built a school to teach this stuff. Hugh Holman and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh Hallman has been my guest this hour. We're talking family, faith, and politics, points of no return. Well, let me try and make a leap here, um, if I can, because you spend a lot of time in a lot of cities outside of uh, Arizona that have been experiments in, um, shall we say, uh, decimations of formation, uh, family combination, family uh, cohesion, and uh, absent religion as well. Uh, absent, um, despite the best efforts of a lot of religious organizations to try and make up for those problems in family formation. I mean, that's the interesting thing about family and religion in this country is, you know, they kind of were self-reinforcing, but at the same time, when one fell, the other kind of stood up. And uh, I think that's probably been true since the beginning of time. It's certainly been true in my study of American history since the Civil War, particularly in dealing with uh, black civil rights or African Americans, where the church was so important, though the families had been decimated by government policies, obviously ugly as as all get out. Um, and then kind of the self-reinforcement came back together, reconstituted itself, if you will, um, circa late 1800s to about just after World War II, let us say. And you actually had family formation in the African-American community that in many cases rivaled white family formation. Um, in 1965, Daniel Moynihan wrote a very famous report on the threat to the American family uh, due to the absence of fathers. Um, and he said, we are facing a tornado and a hurricane and an earthquake with a 25% out-of-wedlock birth rate in the African-American community and a 10% out-of-wedlock birth rate, birth rate in the white, white community. Well, those numbers have shifted now to about 28% and about 75%. And you see the fallout, you see the downwash all around us. Is this a point of no return? I don't know, Hugh. Well, and I think that was where we really wanted to start was you and Lewis had talked about this family formation as the end of your conversation, and I wanted to pick it up. It was a force of composition. That's what it was. Exactly, yeah. because if you look at family formation through around 1900, mm -hmm. uh, it was a relationship because the it was a transaction which equal oxen were yoked together to create a family and move forward. And love sometimes played a role in that, but not often. Um, and that's not to say love is a bad thing. But that relationship was established for a very important reason. And 
what we did, uh, and and in fact, I would argue that during during the period you were really trying not to say is during slavery in the United States, family formation in the black community was quite strong. It was important as part of the life that people were living. Um, and because of the government's uh, structure and what had happened with our Constitution and the, the compromise. But following uh, elimination of slavery, family formation continued and got stronger in the black community. I'm going to say that because not everybody was from Africa. And that was important uh, and continued through the period you pointed out. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan does a report uh, in his legislative role and says, look at this. We've got to be worried about that. And we had started with government procedures that were incentivizing the disintegration of the family, as I think it's— You could get welfare so long as you had kids, but no father in the house. Correct. Or no other parent, and and inevitably it was women. Right. And that incentivized women to, um, as one of the hosts on this this airways talks about, marry the government. Right. And by doing so, uh, supplanted— male roles in the household, which then undermined the modeling for young men especially, who then learned that they're useless and unvaluable, that, uh, and I believe I can say this on air, uh, animated, animated bags of sperm is how men have become in this environment. And as a result, they are only used for that reproductive model and dispensed with into lives of uselessness and, and hopelessness. And that process, through government intervention, has gone into other parts of our communities. And now as Hispanics are having some of the same government processes applied to them, uh, don't, don't try to help yourself, let us help you, then you now see 40% of children born in Hispanic households without right. two parents. You see 70% plus in black community uh, and now you're seeing above 25% approaching 30% in the balance of our society. Uh, the place you're not seeing that is in Asian households yet. And so there is the irony that government action didn't create the family, but government action is now destroying it in the same way that government action has started to undermine our political life. And it absolutely has undermined our religious life, trying to replace the the jobs and the services that religious communities supplied through non-religious sources. So creating welfare agencies and all the support for the family and support for food banking and everything else coming out of the government supplanted that community network that de Tocqueville talked about, that this was a nation of associations that were community members coming together to form a fabric of the community, each of them as a thread in that fabric, to strengthen the society and deliver services together as part of their commitment to the society. And in doing so, retaining that fabric, creating the sense of community, the religious communities playing a huge role in that, and all of that has been supplanted by government action. And as a result, we now see the loss of religious activity, the loss of participation in churches, the loss of family formation, and that is now eking as a result of the destruction of the fabric of our society into our political life as well. And people cannot behave together as family members in a political environment when they've never learned to do that in their family or in a religious environment. And that religious envelope provided the value system that reminded people 
how this entire society has been created and sustained. Wow, that's I, I, a well. The question, I guess, well, and we're returning I, to yeah. solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Well, it's interesting. Street ethics. Yeah, it's interesting. You think about a city like Philadelphia. No accident that the Declaration and Constitution come out of it. It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's what it means. A church we, on every corner. Well, right. And we thought of our fellow citizens as people of brotherly love. It takes us probably back to Aristotle, as I think everything does anyway, where he says, amongst friends there is no need for justice. And what we have seen is with the divisions in this country, whether it's through the falling out and the problems from lack of faith and lack of family and lack of formation, lack of forces of composition, as we generally call them around here, you've had less and less uh, less and less and less of a um, of uh, of that of that brotherly love feeling and more and more need of a form of justice, at least a form of government to try and step in. But government being the wrecking ball that it can be, government being uh, the ship so hard to steer and so corruptible by the people within it, it cannot replace those forces of composition that the founders gave us that Tocqueville talked about in the importance of the associations you do. So the only question that's really left, that's a serious one, is when are you running for governor? Take a quick break. We'll be right back. <laughs> Young David is spinning uh, the Village People's YMCA. An example, actually, of the kinds of institutions that de Tocqueville was talking about. An example of a great product of what the city of uh, Philadelphia produced. An educated citizenry with uh, the importance of uh, great human beings that would emanate from it and then become teachers is my guest, Hugh Hallman. I'll let you conclude however you would like, sir. Boy, I'll give it. A, that was a, a heavy load. The, I think the conclusion would be this: we have at least three elements that are currently under siege, and we both worry about whether we're getting to a point of no return. That the fuel in the tank is not going to be enough to get us back to the foundational principles that will allow this society to be sustained. It's crucially important because this shining city on a hill, this experiment, is rare in human history. Just look across the world through all time, and you'll see that this still stands as a remarkable achievement. And it has provided that umbrella and moved, remember where Europe was when this country was founded, kings and queens and all kinds of crazy, and all of those societies moved in this direction, as many others have. In that context, it is worth our time to work to save the family, save religious involvement, and save our political life. And they all seem to have, for me, the same philosophical basis, a notion of law that has transcended most of human history, because we call it the Western tradition. But the Western tradition really came out of the crucible of the Middle East, where people sort of created the society and those ideas made their way across the globe, adopted in some places, ignored in others. The results, I think, are palpable. Those places that adopted the notions that come out of 10 simple rules that 
a legislator, Anthony Kern, is saying we ought to be able to display those in schools. Well, I certainly understand that we want to be cautious about uh, establishing religion. But the rules we're talking about, in the most part, transcend any religion. They are the human condition, and they set the, the structural uh, basis on which we can survive together and create great results. And when you read the Ten Commandments and think about them as human legal uh, rules, one can secularize them and deal with the fact that four of those rules specifically are about God and God's role in our life. But six out of those ten are things that anybody has problems with it. You wonder, what is your problem, Mr. Uh, Legislator, when you want to recognize that you want to honor your mother and father? So that the family formation stays together, that you don't murder people, you don't commit adultery because that's going to unhinge all kinds of bits in society. You don't steal. You don't bear false witness against that's the entire reason the justice system works is that you tell the truth. And finally, you don't covet your neighbor's house or wife or precisely because it will cause you to do the things you shouldn't do. These rules of law are essential to our continuing to survive. And we ought to be thinking of that as we want to sustain this society long into the future. Well, bless you and thank you, Hugh. Uh, And to the rest of the audience as well, thank you and bless you all. Thank you, uh, young David. Thank you, Mr. Bill. Thank you, Teresa. All in our effort as we started, and as Lincoln said in his first inaugural, to recombinate the bonds of our affection. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.